Welcome back. Well, now for some shocking true crime stories from one part of Australia and the fears that some people might have gotten away with murder. More than 80 men were killed or disappeared in New South Wales from the late 70s to the 90s, and 30 of those cases remain unsolved until this day. One hotspot was the clifftop between Bondi Beach and Tamarama in Sydney, where it's believed that several men were thrown to their deaths, men including Jill Matain, Ross Warren and John Russell. Police said that their deaths were suicides, but a coroner has labelled those investigations as, quote, grossly inadequate and even shameful. Duncan McNabb is a former policeman who is now an investigative journalist and author, and he joins us now in Studio 10. Welcome back to the show. So we're talking dozens of murders here. Um, I mean, are they all connected? Connected, I suppose, in that the gangs, the people that um, committed them or may have committed them, um, or most of them had a sort of gay hate motivation. Confused young men particularly, and uh, in one case a smattering of young women are actually at the scene egging them on. Yeah. It's a pretty horrendous, and so whether you were gay or straight, you were assumed to be gay, and on went the attack. Um, in some cases murder, in some cases these were passed off as suicide or misadventure, which for the families is incredibly sad. Yeah, I remember uh, hearing about these crimes when I was a kid, just so sickening and really creepy too, this really dark sort of underbelly of Australia. Now, um, why didn't the police uh, investigate? Were they homophobic as well? They just didn't care? Or the, why were they not caught? Bit of a blend. Oh, a couple of them were just stunningly inept investigations. But I think at some stage too, and there's a terrific copper called Steve Page once said, if they hadn't been gay, would they have got better treatment? And I think he's right. I think there was the New South Wales police in the mid-70s to almost early 90s had a serious problem with homophobia. So they, the homosexual acts were still illegal. Right? Yeah, up about 84, 85 yeah. in New South Wales. And there was a, there was a lingering um, problem with the New South Wales police force. It went back to World War II. Welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Excuse our absence um, over the last couple of weeks. We've actually both been sick and we also had school holidays here in Victoria. So it's just been a bit hectic. And if you've noticed that we sound a little bit different today, we've actually managed to break our microphone as well. So until we've replaced that, we're sort of using um, a different method. So if it doesn't sound as good, we apologise. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Um, as always, we wanted to say a big thank you to some of our Patreons. So we've recently released our James Bolger episode. So if you haven't heard that, you can jump onto our Patreon and have a listen. And a big thank you to Melissa, Clover, Olivia, Danielle, Laura C, Jessica, Chanel, Anna Lee and Molly. Thank you guys so much for your support. We really do appreciate it. And with that said, I'll pass you over to Bill to get a start on this week's case. Thanks, Harry. Ross Bradley Warren was 24 years old when he disappeared on Friday the 21st of July, 1989. He was going from strength to strength in both his career and his personal life. Ross was a newsreader and weatherman for Win4 TV in Wollongong, New South Wales. The people closest to Ross described him as an extremely soft-hearted and kind person who was always up for trying new things and wore his heart on his sleeve. He was always up for a laugh and had been known to be quite the larrikin. Before he disappeared, he was getting ready to really take his career to the next level. Though he started in Wollongong, bigger networks in Sydney had taken notice of his talent. 
In the 80s, that was how you made it big in the news industry. You moved from where you lived to Sydney to make it in the big league. Ross Warren was also a gay man. In New South Wales, homosexuality was only decriminalised in 1984, so homophobia was still widespread in the late 80s. Because of this, Ross felt that it was best for his career to keep his sexuality on the down low. In the business of TV at that time, people were still judged on their sexuality. Being openly gay was still a fairly new concept. Ross would often travel the 82 kilometres from coastal Wollongong to Sydney to enjoy some anonymity and the more open-minded atmosphere. On that Friday, the 21st of July, 1989, Ross arrived at his friend Craig Alice's house in Redfern at approximately 7pm. Craig was an ex-lover of Ross's, who was now one of his closest friends, and Ross would often stay with him on weekends so he could be close to the city. The city offered Ross the opportunity to meet other gay men in a safe and open-minded setting, gay bars. According to Craig, Ross was in good spirits when he arrived. He invited Craig and Craig's partner, Paul Saucis, to join him on the night out, but the couple politely declined. At around 11pm that night, Ross drove to Taylor Square after dropping his belongings off at Craig's house to meet his friend, Philip Rossini, at a gay bar on Oxford Street. Taylor's Square and Oxford Street were home to some of Sydney's best gay night spots. Ross and Philip decided to meet at the Oxford Hotel. They were out and about until approximately 2.30am on Saturday the 22nd of July. They went their separate ways and his friends saw him get into his brown Nissan Pulsar and drive in the opposite direction of Craig's house in Redfern. He thought this was strange because Ross had said that he would be going straight home, but he didn't think about it for too long at this time. The next morning, Craig wasn't too concerned that Ross hadn't come home. While it wasn't really in his character to stay out, it wasn't completely out of the question that Ross had met someone he liked and gone home with them. Ross wasn't a big drinker or a binge drinker. He was known to follow each drink with water so Craig wasn't worried that he'd had too much to drink and gotten hurt or lost. As the weekend continued, Craig did begin to grow more worried about his friend. By Sunday the 23rd of July, both Craig and Ross's mum Kay had reportedly rang Ross's place of employment to see whether he had turned up for work or called in sick. He hadn't. This was a huge red flag. Ross was extremely reliable and never missed work without calling in first. Craig and his partner Paul made their way to the Paddington Police Station and reported Ross missing at 8.15pm that Sunday. Police didn't seem to be taking the report too seriously, so Craig and Paul decided to head out and conduct their own search for Ross. Craig knew that Ross sometimes frequented Marks Park, which is a beachside area of parkland between Bondi Beach and Tamarama. Craig had actually met Ross at Mark's Park around Easter of 1988 and the two became lovers. Their intimate relationship lasted about two months before the pair decided they were better off as close friends. Craig knew Mark's Park was a popular gay beat and was somewhere Ross may have gone looking for a man. While they were searching, they came across Ross's car. They realised that the car was unlocked and there were items of Ross's clothing inside as well as his wallet, which was sitting on the front seat. 
Craig and Paul couldn't think of any reason for Ross's car to be left abandoned there. They didn't know anyone who lived in the area. The men were immediately worried because of the hostile attitude towards homosexuality in the area at the time. There had been many attacks against gay men in the lead-up to July 1989. As far as Craig knew, Ross was planning on coming back to his house that night to spend the rest of the evening. Despite Ross's friends reporting him missing, police pretty much dismissed the case of Ross's disappearance at the time. The two men realised that the police were not investigating and decided to do their own investigation. They went door knocking in the area where they discovered Ross's car, but nobody had seen anything. They walked through Mark's Park and along the ocean walking track, looking for any sign of their friend. As Craig was searching along the side of the cliff, kicking over stones, something shiny caught his eyes. He looked down and reached into a recess in the cliff face and pulled out Ross's keys. The position and placement of the keys suggested to Craig that they had been purposely put there rather than thrown or put there by waves. This was before everybody carried mobile phones, so Craig stayed with the keys while Paul went to the police station to inform them of the find. Not long after the disappearance, the constable on duty told them that there was no action that could be taken because Ross was an adult and allowed to come and go as he pleased, and also he hadn't been missing for long enough. The next day, Paul and Craig went back to the police station. It was now 48 hours since they had last seen Ross. The men filled out a missing person report about their friend. Almost two years later, on the 15th of April, 1991, Detective Sergeant Steve McCann of the Homicide Unit in the Regional Crime Squad submitted a report, which explored the possible connections between a number of crimes against homosexual men in the South Bondi area in previous decades. He thought that Ross's disappearance might be related to other homosexual hate crimes in the area, based on his last known whereabouts and the location where his keys were found. The area where Ross's keys were found was near Mark's Park, which, as we said before, is a popular gay beat. I know we've mentioned in a previous episode that a gay beat is an area that's frequented by gay men where they can meet other like-minded men for sex or even relationships. These were very popular in the 80s and 90s, as well as prior to the decriminalisation of homosexuality, when being gay was extremely taboo. Mark's Park had been a known gay beat for a long time, up to 60 or 70 years, despite the fact that during the day it was quite a popular family tourist destination. Because the park attracted gay men looking for like-minded partners, it also attracted homophobic predators looking to target gay men. In the year 2000, Sydney was getting ready to celebrate the Sydney Olympics. Detective Sergeant Stephen Page came across some letters from Ross Warren's mother Kay in the police files. In the letters, she begged police to investigate and hold a coronial inquest. She just wanted closure if her son had died. He felt awful for the obviously distressed and frustrated mother, and he vowed he would give her some closure. He decided to read through the file on Ross's death and saw that it had been officially regarded as non-suspicious death. The deeper he delved into the files, the more errors he noticed and began to grow more and more suspicious that there may have been foul play involved in Ross's disappearance. It was obvious that police procedures had not been followed correctly at the time. 
Page knew that if he took on the case, he would have to start completely from scratch. There was no physical evidence, no witness statements, and no suspects. The first thing Sergeant Page decided to do was to interview the last three people to see Ross Warren in 1989, Craig Ellis, Paul Saucis, and Philip Rossini. Everything Craig recalled in 2000 was exactly the same as he had reported back in 1989. Paul also corroborated the information given by Craig Ellis. Philip Rossini confirmed that Ross had been in good spirits before he disappeared. The two had had some drinks, talked about work and upcoming social events, and had then parted ways that evening. Philip reiterated the point that Ross had gone the opposite way from Craig's house towards Bondi. He had made a mental note of it, but then dismissed it as nothing at the time. Everyone who knew him confirmed that the disappearance was completely out of character and Ross was not likely to have committed suicide as his career was just taking off. Detective Sergeant Page then sought out the police who originally worked on the case. Most of them said they had basically nothing to do with the investigation. This confirmed Page's thoughts that a thorough investigation was not conducted at the time of Ross's disappearance. Over the years, there had been a number of deaths, murders and disappearances in the Bondi and Tamarara areas that were attributed to violent gangs. Because homosexuality was only recently decriminalised in the 80s and AIDS had become a hot topic in the media, there were people who were openly ignorant, hateful and fearful of homosexual men. In the 80s and 90s, there were many known incidents of bashings by homophobic gangs in the area. Detective Sergeant Page quickly learned that there were many other suspicious deaths and disappearances of gay men in the same area that may have been directly related to Ross's disappearance. It was thought that possibly Ross, along with others, had become the victims of gay hate crimes. On September 15, 1985, a gay Frenchman, Gilles Mariani, who was living in Bondi, was last seen walking along a coastal trail between Bondi and Tamarama, towards Mark's Park by a neighbour. Like Ross, he was never seen again. Unfortunately, despite many friends noticing that he was missing, they all thought that somebody else had filed a police report. As a result, no official missing persons report was ever filed about his disappearance. In 2005, Deputy State Coroner of New South Wales, Jacqueline Millage, ruled that Mariani was most likely deceased and possibly the victim of a hate crime. In January of 1990, an openly gay man, Richard Norman Johnson, was lured to the toilet block in Alexandria. A gang of youths who would become known as the Alexandria Eight had found his phone number on the wall of one of the toilet stalls. They called him, falsely implying that they were a man looking for a hookup. When Richard entered the toilet to meet the other caller, the gang jumped him and beat him until he passed away from internal injuries. The group was convicted for his murder, but they weren't the only group operating in the area. In July 1990, a Thai national named Krichikorn Ratanajarathaporn went to the Marks Park area one night after work. Krichikorn had only been in the area for approximately four months but he still found it more accepting of his sexuality than it was in his homeland. His parents were traditionally Thai and didn't know about his sexuality. 
That night, he was wandering along the ocean track when he met a man named Geoffrey Sullivan. The two got talking, sitting on a rock ledge. Suddenly, a gang of youths approached them. Geoffrey was severely beaten with a claw hammer by the boys. Critchicorn momentarily broke free of the gang and tried to run to freedom, but the gang caught him and swung at his head with the hammer. Eventually, he passed away from his injuries. He was then thrown over the side of the cliff. When the gang finally made their getaway, Geoffrey was still breathing, although very injured. The next morning, Geoffrey was found by tourists in the area, and he was able to tell his story to the police. Police divers searched the area and discovered Critchicorn's body in the ocean. Geoffrey Sullivan was able to let police know that the pair was attacked by a gang of youths. Soon after, the three killers of Critchicorn were caught after being overheard bragging about bashing a Chinaman. The three killers of Critchicorn were named Matthew Davis, Sean McAuliffe and his brother David McAuliffe. When interviewed, one of the murderers, Matthew Davis, spoke out against the McAuliffe brothers, stating that they were frequently involved in targeted attacks against gay men on the weekend. It was like a sport to them. They were part of a group that was known as the Bondi Boys. In December 1999, Jenny Muos and Sue Thompson presented an academic paper to the Hate Crime Conference at the University of Sydney. Their research examined the circumstances under which homosexual hate crimes occur compared to other male homicides. They found that crimes against gay men were more likely to involve multiple offenders against one victim. The victim was more likely to be older than the offender. The victim was more likely to be brutally beaten or stabbed to death. The victim was more likely to be killed by a complete stranger. The killer was more likely to be very young, approximately aged between 15 and 17. Both the victim and the offender were most likely to be Caucasian. The victims were likely to be employed, whereas the perpetrator was likely to be low socioeconomic and unemployed. Another common feature of crimes against gay men was that the perpetrator was likely to try and utilise a homosexual advance defence. This is where the offender claims that the victim made a homosexual advance on them, which triggered a violent reaction. Every state in Australia now has in some way or another abolished this defence strategy or deemed it to not be a valid defence in the first place. The information from the 1999 academic report shined a light on what may have happened to many men in unsolved homicides and disappearances. It was now believed that upwards of 30 men had fallen victim to the gangs targeting gay men. In Page's investigation, he came across the details of another mysterious death in the area. John Russell was a 31-year-old man living in Bondi in 1989. He was a well-known, popular, happy young man with a big circle of friends. He was working as a barman when he inherited $100,000 from his grandfather. It was an exciting time for him. He was planning to move away from Bondi to build a new home with his inheritance. Things were looking good. He was all packed up and ready to leave. On the 22nd of November, 1989, John was having farewell drinks with his closest friends at the Bondi Hotel. He said goodbye to his friends, who he was due to see the next day. On his walk home, for some reasons unknown, 
John went down to Mark's Park Beat. This wasn't something he did often, only on occasion. The next morning, a jogger running along the cliffs saw John's body laying on a rock shelf over the side of a cliff. He called the police. Nearby, John's cigarette packet and a key were found. Police thought that John's death was a possible suicide or death by misadventure at the time, but his family disagreed with this immediately. When they went to the police station at Bondi to find out what was going on, they were given no information. Steve Page was shocked that the case was not investigated more thoroughly given the extensive injuries to John's body. He had a broken clavicle, fractured skull and ribs, a broken arm, broken legs, extensive abrasions to his body, a torn lip and a cut above his eye. Unfortunately, the fall had masked the severity of any physical assault that had taken place. One major indicator that his death was not an accident was the fact that in his hand he was clasping a lump of hair. The hair in his hand didn't seem to match the hair on his head. His body was laying in a way that was inconsistent with someone falling accidentally. The way his body lay suggests that he was pushed or thrown backwards. At the time, neither the hair from John's hands or any of John's clothing was scientifically tested, and police actually washed the clothing. John's family got the impression that because John was gay, the police were not interested in giving him a proper investigation. Like many of the population at the time, many police officers were still uncomfortable with the newly decriminalised sexuality issue, and many were homophobic themselves. In 2005, a task force, Operation Taradale, was formed to investigate suspicious deaths of gay men in Sydney's eastern suburbs. One of the deaths that Operation Taradale focused on, potential death of Ross Warren. When Taradale concluded three years later, a report of 2,638 pages was produced. Deputy State Coroner Jacqueline Millage formally documented a recollection of what Matthew Davis heard David McAuliffe say after they threw Critchicorn over the side of the cliff. Don't worry, this isn't, the this isn't the first time we've done this. You're one of us now. Based on the report produced by Operation Taradale, Jacqueline Millage agreed with the findings by Stephen Page that both Ross Warren and John Russell, like Critchicorn, had been murdered. She stated that the original police investigation into Ross Warren's death was grossly inadequate and shameful, and that John Russell's investigation was lacklustre. She was disgraced that police had not tested the hair in John Russell's hand and that it was unfortunate that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute anyone for either of the murders. The New South Wales Police Force has admitted that serious mistakes were made when it came to examining the gay hate murders of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Police Commander Superintendent Tony Crandall spoke out on the issue, quote, Of course it alarms me we're talking about the death of a human being. That in itself lends a great deal of gravity to the investigator and a great deal of responsibility to make sure that there's a thorough investigation conducted. To this day, nobody has been charged with the murder of Ross Warren, and many other and many of other disappearances and murders remain unsolved. Of course, with the right information, many of these cases could be solved. 
If you have any information that could be helpful of any of the cases that I'm about to name, please call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 The cases that remain unsolved include Jill Mattiani, Raymond Keem, William Allard, Ross Warren, John Russell, Cyril Olson, Crispin Dye, Mark Spawnswick, Paul Rath, David Williams, Gerald Cuthbert, Peter Scheel, Wendy Brennan, Scott Johnson, William Dutfield, Kenneth Brennan, Carl Stockton, David Rose, Simon Blair Walk, Andrew Curry, Samantha Ray, John Gordon Hughes, Scott Miller, Ali Mokdad, Richard Slater, Walter Bedser, William Rooney, Russell Payne, Alan Edge, and Graham Painter. We are sure that there are also some that we have missed. Our thoughts are with the families of all the men we have named today, as well as anyone who has lost their lives because of such ignorance, hate, and meaningless violence. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Join us next time for another episode. And until then, please stay safe.